When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. April, what I am about to say might seem a little controversial coming from a fashion historian, but I would be perfectly happy never seeing, touching, or examining historical garments in real life. I think we might be in different camps on that point, but I do know for a fact that there are plenty of other fashion historians who do really, really amazing work without the clothes themselves. And this is possible because there is so much fashion media out there. It really is indeed possible. Yeah. And I, of course, I absolutely love and appreciate their value. And I have many times been inspired by the drop dead beauty of any number of my favorite pieces from throughout history. But for me personally, it's always been the images of garments, be it illustrations or photographs that really speak to me the most. The artist's interpretation of clothing, be it a painter, illustrator, or photographer, or what inspire me. One of my all-time favorite fashion images is actually one of these two masked beauties captured by Edward Steichen's lens in Vogue in 1926. There's this haunting, ethereal quality to the image that is truly breathtaking, and this image and many others speak to my very soul as much as any E.E. E. Cummings poem or Odilon Freydon painting ever has. Yeah, I don't even know where to begin with this because I am physically surrounded by this stuff all day, every day at work. And so I look at so much of it. Um, and just the fact of looking at things has been a whole education in and of itself. If I had to pick a favorite, I would say maybe mine would be this Helma Newton photograph of the actress Charlotte Rampling. That's from 1973. Mm. Um, But I don't know if we can really consider this a fashion image because she's completely nude sitting on a table (laughs) with a glass of wine and a pack of cigarettes in this sort of uh, French neo-baroque interior. I mean, I don't know. What can you say? Can we call that a fashion photograph? I would say maybe we can because fashion begins with body itself, obviously. Um, And this photo is definitely detailing an element of the fashionable lifestyle. Be it a statuesque Danielle Luna bedecked in Paco Rabanne armor or any number of Tim Walker's dystopic fairy tales, fashion imagery plays an undeniable role in how we all receive and interpret fashion. Throughout the history of fashion, we are indebted to these images and not just the role they play in disseminating the latest fashions of any era, but in immortalizing them on the page for us to appreciate today. But it is because of the inherent commercial nature of fashion photography, after all, it is used to sell products, that for years it was largely ignored by museum and art collectors. 
But that has all changed, and one current exhibition at the J. Paul Getty Museum is here to prove it. Icons of Style, a Century of Fashion Photography, charts 100 years of fashion photography from 1911 to 2011 and features over 160 fashion photographs as well as garments, magazine covers, and all sorts of other ephemera. We have the distinctive honor of welcoming the exhibition's curator, Paul Martineau, to the show today. Paul is an associate curator in the Department of Photographs at the museum, where he has worked since 2003. He has curated numerous exhibitions, including the much-lauded retrospective Robert Maplethorpe, The Perfect Medium, which featured prominently in the HBO documentary Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures, which is a must-see, I must say. So, Paul, thank you so much for being here. Welcome, Paul. Thank you both for inviting me to your show. Uh, I mentioned the Maplethorpe exhibition because I actually find that there are a few parallels to be drawn between his work and fashion photography, now not necessarily in the scope or content of his work, but in the fact that people have long challenged the notion that fashion photography, like Maplethorpe's controversial photos, are just not worthy of the attention of museum or art collectors. But that has actually changed a lot over the last 20 or 30 years, and the Getty Museum has been at the fore on both fronts. And I'm hoping you can tell us more about what inspired this exhibition, which truly validates fashion photography as an art form. Well, the idea first came to me in 2010 when I was preparing the exhibition Herbert Sally Style. I reviewed the museum's holdings and found that the collection boasted a surprising number of examples by artists such as Cecil Beaton, Louise Dalwolf, Baron de Meyer, Horst P. Horst, and William Klein. I knew that fashion photography had suffered from being at the intersection of two historically marginalized mediums, mm -hmm. and I wondered if we could do something to change that. Over the next eight years, we added 70 fashion photographs by 25 different makers. Um, preparing the ground uh, or foundation for this groundbreaking exhibition. And when you say uh, collected photographs, are you talking about like the original print or? Yes, we were looking for vintage prints, prints that were made just shortly after the negative was taken. Oh, fantastic. And so this exhibition very purposefully covers a very specific 100-year period. So it starts in 1911 with a photo shoot of Paul Perret gowns by Edward Steichen, for Art Decoration Magazine, which is a French magazine. And we have, April and I have actually talked a little bit about the importance of this shoot in two episodes, Birth of the Modern and our Paul Paré episode. But I'm hoping you can speak a little bit more about why this shoot in particular is considered the birth of modern fashion photography. What was so different about what Steichen was producing in his photographs than what had come before? Well, before Steichen, fashion photography was too literal, too realistic for mm -hmm. top style magazines. You have to remember that hand-drawn fashion illustration was the dominant way of communicating the latest styles and artists' renderings were often highly idealized. Uh, the bodies and faces also reflected the prevailing notions of beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, Steichen was a smart choice because he was one of the most foremost art photographers of the period. Mm -hmm. He posed the models gracefully in luxurious interiors and used soft focus lens on his camera and natural light to create very painterly images that were the exact opposite of the overall deadening clarity of most fashion photography at the time. We have Le Mode magazine, which premiered in 1901, and they were exclusively using fashion photographs, but they really show this kind of static, 
traditional representation of fashion, right? Yes. So you're trying to get as much detail to the the reader as possible. Um, and Steichen and Paul Perret really were trying to evoke like a mood and a feeling. So it's incredibly different. Yes. And these pictures just look so luxurious and soft. Um, you almost want to enter them and feel the fabrics. Yeah, and you, I love that you kind of feel like you're, you're maybe an uninvited guest into um, these interiors, which is a Pauperet's house. You know, you're kind of getting a glimpse into, into a life there um, that, you know, you really just would not have seen in any other fashion publication during this time. And Poiret especially, he's doing this with fashion illustration too, but he's, he's creating these incredibly modern new designs and he needed a medium that would equally evoke, um, you know, what he was trying to do with his modern dresses. So he needed modern photography and modern fashion illustration to, to provide these new representations of his gowns. And Steichen, I think it's important to say too, that Steichen wasn't a fashion photographer by any means, right? No, no. He was um, a skilled portraitist and also an art photographer who did um, landscapes and still life. Um, nudes, um, but he hadn't really done much fashion photography before this point. Yeah, so they're bringing art to fashion photography for the first time. And Steichen really validates fashion photography as a medium for artists. Exactly. So I think Baron Adolf de Meyer is working um, close to this period too, right? He becomes the first Vogue yes. staff photographer at Vogue in 1914, and he's doing similar um, experimentations with lighting and mood. Yes. Um, and that kind of carries us through the 1910s, right? But That's right. They're very much still competing with these static traditional representations of fashion at this point. Yes. Uh, fashion illustration was the dominant mode until well into the 1930s mm -hmm. when the tables started to be switched in favor of photography. Mm-hmm. So until then, um, as we closely examine fashion photography through these early years, we, we're traveling through the 1910s and into the 20s and 30s, it becomes more and more apparent that evolutions in fashion photography really go hand in hand with the evolutions that's happening in dress. I mean, there is a lot going on. If you look at, you know, the shift dresses of the 1920s and compare them to the corseted silhouette of the 1905 era, that's only 15, 20 year difference. So right. Fashion's evolving into modernity throughout the 10s and 20s, and it's emphasizing simplicity and ease of movement. I feel like you see these adaptations in fashion photography as well. Can you talk about the ways in which fashion influenced photography during these periods? I think one of the most important influences was the, um, the popularity of sportswear for women, mm. that they were getting out and being active and playing tennis and um, doing th different things outdoors, and that precipitated the gradual movement from the studio to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And um, in 1933, Munkachi, who was a photojournalist from Hungary, uh, was hired by Carmel Snow to be a photographer at Harper's because he was the first person that was doing uh, fashion outdoor movement shots. and. Carmel Snow knew that um, in order to compete with Vogue, she had to do something original and different. Even though these kinds of pictures really weren't considered very ladylike or appropriate for a top fashion magazine. 
Yeah, and I love and uh, your book, which uh, everyone should go out and get if you cannot see the exhibition. It's an incredibly beautiful book that accompanies it um, with many, many of the images. And there's that beautiful Minkachi 1936 uh, portrait, and her gown is just billowing in the wind. And also in that same series of photographs is this uh, 1931, this um, George Hoynadian Hunuf image of a V&A gown. Oh, yes. I never knew this. It's one of my all-time favorite images. And it looks like her gown's moving, but in, in the book you write that it's actually entirely staged. Yes, it was um, in order to make the picture, the artist had a big slant board made. He covered it with black fabric. Oh, my gosh. And then positioned the model laying down on top of it and had his assistants pinning the fabric out so it would look like it was moving in the wind. Yeah, every single thing is pinned down. It's just incredible. I had no idea. And it looks so incredibly elegant, but it looks so old-fashioned when you compare it to Munkachi's picture where he's just outdoors with the wind whipping through this very beautiful, light, gauzy fabric. Yeah, it's it's instantly passe almost when you see it compared to those images. It, it feels like very much two different periods. Exactly. So... Um, the first color photograph to appear on the cover of Vogue comes in 1932, but still that no, in no way indicates the dominance of this medium. So fashion photography is still very much competing with fashion illustration as the genre of choice in depicting fashion. So when does fashion photography, you kind of mentioned it earlier, when does it finally become the medium of choice for fashion editors and why does that happen, do you think? Well, uh, there were some magazines that continued to use illustrations, but um, and they started to use them slowly in lesser numbers throughout the 1930s. By the 1940s, most of the top magazines were using f so much more photography than uh, drawing. Mm -hmm. And I think it just has to do with that realistic quality, this kind of authenticity. Um, the practicality of the clothing suggested that women should be outside doing exciting things. Mm -hmm. And when you brought the camera in small format outdoors, you could really make some interesting pictures. Yeah. So is fashion photography starting to reflect, it's starting to actually reflect what women are doing, or at least an idolized version of what women are doing? Yes. And women can see themselves in photography for the first time, I guess? Yes. Yes. I mean, the average woman... Um, could see themselves uh, in photography in ways that they just couldn't do it in the beginning of the 30s or in the 1920s um, when things were much more highly stratified in terms of, you know, um, economic and social class. Mm -hmm. And does that continue into the advent of World War II in 1939? Well, one of the things that happened was that the outfits became more practical mm -hmm. out of necessity. And also there were limitations to how much fabric could be used um, so that it could be reserved for the war effort. Um, and the photographers, instead of keeping up this idea of heightened luxury and elegance and excess, mm -hmm. um, they went for more practical way of making pictures outdoors without elaborate sets, um, showing people moving about the city. Uh, so it was a very different kind of idea. And um, instead of kind of burying one's head and having magazines creating this great escape for its their readers, mm -hmm. 
they address the issues of the war head on in a very practical manner, um, saying that we all need to be on the same page together to get through this. Yeah, fantastic. And so when we get back from a brief sponsor break, we will talk about what happens when Oak Glamour and the camera combine in the post-World War II era. Welcome back. The 1950s is considered the golden age of the haute couture and arguably the golden age of fashion photography, or I should say a particular type of fashion photography. This is the post-war period of Dior's new look, high fashion at its most luxurious and covetable, and the fashion photographs by people such as Richard Avedon and Irving Penn are essential parts of this. You have these incredibly striking images from this period, a room full of women wearing um, those incredible silk satin Charles James gowns. That's a photograph by Cecil Beaton. You have that iconic Richard Avedon photograph of Devima. She's wearing a black and white Dior gown um, positioned between those two elephants, which is one of my all-time favorite images. Paul, can you speak a little bit more to the high glamour of this era, especially when in contrast with what was happening in World War II, fashion photography, and the role of particular fashion photographers in shaping this new era of fashion photography? Well, that Charles James um, gown picture by Cecil Beaton is really fantastic. And um, Cecil Beaton was a good friend of James. Mm -hmm. And that um, shot was taken in a fancy neoclassical French salon in New York. And the whole idea was to get back to a more civilizing influence um, in fashion and fashion photography after the war. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of crazy things happened. And um, the 1950s was all about, you know, bringing families back together and and um, promoting um, a more civil society. Um, so I think that was, you know, went hand in glove with this movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took um, Beaton the whole day to take that picture because James kept on rushing in and moving the gowns to and fro, trying to, you know, arrange all the pleats. <laughs> I love getting those little tidbits of insider information. Thank you. And then we have Avedon photographing in Paris in the late 1940s, and those pictures are spectacular. Um, he had Susie Parker and Robin Tattersall roller skating through the Place de la Concorde. <laughs> Uh, they're practically dancing uh, through the square. And then he has Carmen de Orofice jumping a puddle. Oh, yeah. In a coat by Pierre Cardin. And these pictures are absolutely exuberant. Um, and the models are being encouraged to express their joy. And that was very different um, than anything we had seen before. The models, for the most part, were encouraged just to be mannequins. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the approach that um, that Irving Penn took. And Irving Penn was pretty much the exact opposite of Avedon. He was the king of the studio mm-hmm. and of stillness and of elegance. Um, he created the black and white idea, a picture that was on the cover of Vogue in 1950. And uh, it has such a striking, bold graphic quality. This was the first black and white photograph that was on the cover of Vogue since uh, Steichen uh, started putting color covers on Vogue in 1932. Oh, that's interesting. So we have this string of unbroken color photographic color covers mm-hmm. and photographic 
illustrated covers until you get to 1950 where they put a black and white picture by Penn on there. And so many of Penn's most iconic images are of his wife, Lisa. She was a model. Is there a choice? Is there a very direct intention by someone like Penn and Avedon to use black and white instead of color? Oh, yes. There were um, definite um, kind of internal rules that they followed about Mm -hmm. when they would use which medium. And color was an expensive thing to do in the 1950s. It was becoming less expensive. Um, Unfortunately, one of the problems was for us now is that there are very few vintage color prints from the period because the artists would send transparencies, so film uh, negatives or positives to the printers to make Mm -hmm. the illustrations. Um, So we don't find as many of those out there. Um, But whenever they chose color, it was for definite reasons. And can you talk a little bit about Because this seems to be the period, too, when fashion photographers themselves are becoming really well-known and they're gaining um, celebrity themselves. I specifically am thinking, of course, of Funny Face, the film. Yes. uh, Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire film. He stars as, um, let's see, Dick Avery, um, a.k.a. Richard Avedon, um, in that film about this fashion photographer. Um, Can you speak a little bit more to that? Sure. Um, It was in the late 1950s, mid-1950s, that um, there were more and more films that featured fashion photographers. And as we go into the 60s, we have Antononi's Blow Up. Mm. Um, In the 70s, we have The Eyes of Laura Mars, starring Faye Dunaway. And these cast um, fashion photographers as very kind of elegant, sexy Mm -hmm. individuals. Um, So that was something that made their lives particularly appealing to people. For the first time, people became interested in what they were doing um, in the studio behind the camera. Right. So, so you have this golden age of haute couture and the fashion photography, which captured it impeccably. And then the 60s come and it just completely topples everything on its head. So one minute fashion is celebrating these sophisticated, elegant women um, in this equally elegant environment. And then this woman is replaced by a 16-year-old, short-haired, bright-eyed Twiggy. But there's also Penelope Tree and Marissa Berenson. So this new um, group of models, young models. So how is the shift to youth culture that's happening in fashion reflected in photography? Well, just as you said, um, the choice of models is just so starkly different from those that were popular in the 1950s. And when I was talking to one of my interns, I said, um, we need to have the twig, the shrimp, the cod, and the tree in the show. And he said, excuse me? And I said, the models. Um, In the early 1960s, you have the British invasion. Yes. And um, that's very exciting. People like David Bailey and Terence Donovan and um, Duffy were out on the streets uh, capturing young women and men in the swinging 60s. But the the um, the fashions weren't really, uh, they still stayed relatively conservative mm-hmm. um, until the later 1960s when we have an explosion of styles. Um, there's mod, there's peasant, um, there's the kind of gender bending and androgyny 
hippie counterculture. <laughs> yes, exactly. We have Diana Vreeland at the helm of Vogue, and she felt the 60s was all about romanticism and fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, she loved sending Verushka out uh, to the Russian steppes or to the Moroccan desert, and they were playing all these scenes, scenes from movies like Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago. Um, it was really a kind of special time. And doesn't um, Richard Avedon, isn't, isn't it controversial? He takes, he's editor for one issue of Harper's Bazaar, which is Twiggy's on the cover blinking. Oh, yes. Am I right that there's a controversy that surrounded that space age issue? Well, I think it's just so avant-garde that people didn't really know how to take it just then. Yeah, she's on the she's on the cover and there's a hologram on her eye and it kind of blinks. It's incredible. That's right. Probably the first time they've ever had that on the cover of Harper's Bazaar. And, you know, the covers were much more interesting before the 1970s. Once the 1970s came in, it was all about kind of headshots of, of models and of celebrities. I guess they did some surveys and they found out that that's what sold the best. Um, so they stopped doing these, you know, more exciting creative covers as they had, you know, throughout the 1930s and 40s and 50s. That still continues today, which is interesting, because when you yes. look back at all of the covers, to me, it starts in about 1914, 1915, when you have these incredibly beautiful illustrated covers of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, and then it moves into photography. But right. those, I mean, those images are just incredibly beautiful. And it's interesting that, that we've kind of made that shift and haven't really gone back yet. Right. Well, I guess it was all about money and that yes. was the driver. <laughs> yes, there it is. The, the second part of fashion, we have the art and then we have the commercial aspect, right. which is um, right. never uh, very far behind. And, you know, my job is to really be able to include and exclude. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm constantly doing that to arrive at the very best that I can gather. Mm -hmm. um, so for this show, I had gathered about 600 different images before I started weeding them down, editing them down to mm -hmm. what I felt would make the most impactful uh, exhibition. I know it's interesting because it's so, art is so subjective too. And, and you're really looking at not only what, what, you know, how you feel when you look at that image, but what is that image projecting and what is it, how is it moving the story along as well? Exactly. And there were so many stories to be told because mm -hmm. On the first level, we have the history of the photographer and their careers in fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, then we have the models, the editors, the art directors, their influence, the fashion designers mm -hmm. and the clothes. Um, and then the kind of social, political and economic things that are happening that are shaping the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that because... Fashion photography, like fashion, is a very much a reactive medium. So it's not happening in a bubble. It's responding to the world around it. And one of the most important changes I see in fashion photography during the 1960s is finally the introduction of models of color onto the pages of once exclusively white fashion magazines. So you have Danielle Luna is the first black model on the cover of British Vogue, and that's in 1966. Naomi Sims on the cover of Life magazine in 1969. So can you actually speak a little bit more to the social, cultural, and political events, specifically in the 1960s, but we know that it continues, um, that helped to change the literal face of fashion during that era? Well, I should point out that um, American Vogue was one of the last yeah. uh, big 
big covers to feature an African-American woman Mm -hmm. who was Beverly Johnson in 1974. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1960s, we have the beginnings of the women's movement Mm -hmm. and the sexual revolution. Um, Women were able to buy the contraceptive pill and their lives were changing faster than ever. Um, And we have innovative designers like Yves Saint Laurent who were doing gender role reversal Mm -hmm. with the clothing. He created Le Smoking in 1966 Mm -hmm. and then the Safari look in 1968. Women in pants. Yes, exactly, which Courage made a quote saying at one point uh, during the 1960s, uh, people were surprised by the airplane. Women don't wear pants to the office yet, but they will. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Now they wear them everywhere. Right. Um, And, you know, we kind of touched on it, but the 1960s is incredibly, um, you know, so much is happening during this period. You have the civil rights movement um, and you have, you know, there's a lot, there's the student protests that are happening in France during that period. And I know that that um, influenced Yves Saint Laurent a lot, but also just young people for the first time are influencing fashion. So you have this new generation of young British designers is really where Youthquake starts. And they're influencing high fashion. It's not the French couturiers. It's the French couturiers like Yves Saint Laurent and Courage who are taking the spirit and the momentum from this youth culture and um, transforming fashion. I think a lot of it has to do with money again. During the um, 1930s, um, we see lots of pressure on the haute couture that they Mm -hmm. realize that Uh, they weren't going to be able to make the kind of money that they did during the 1920s. You know, after the um, crash of the stock market, the world being plunged into the Great Depression, it really wrecked a lot of people's finances. And um, it wasn't a gravy train anymore. Mm -hmm. And people had to start relying on ready to wear. You know, that gradually came in. Mm -hmm. And so it was... Uh, by the 1960s, it was coming up from the street and influencing the haute couture designers. Yeah, it was haute couture was uh, becoming increasingly less relevant because even their um, clientele, the women who could afford it, didn't want to spend hours and hours in fittings. They wanted clothing that they could, you know, put on their bodies, maybe make a few adjustments and then go. Right. So you really see the end of the haute couture um, and kind of, the replacement of that with high-end fashion ready-to-wear that we know today. Exactly. So the 60s was really a pivotal period in fashion. And I think it was Mary Quant that said that the reason why she was promoting the miniskirt is so that women could run for the bus. Yes, absolutely. We had a lot of things to do, and we could not do it in these restrictive garments any longer. That's right. (laughs) So I think many people associate fashion photography predominantly with men. So you have Richard Avedon, David Bailey, Horst, the list goes on. But in reality, women fashion photographers have played an incredibly significant role in the history of fashion photography. And you talk a lot about that in your book, um, and they're featured a lot as well, I'm assuming, in the exhibition. So you have Louise Dahl-Wolf, for example. She worked for Harper's Bazaar for over 20 years. Over 600 of her photographs appeared in the magazine pages. Tony Frizzell was a pioneer of underwater photography in the 30s and 40s. So can you speak a little bit to the legacy of women photographers in fashion and also why you think their work has so largely been overlooked? In the exhibition, I really worked hard to bring as many 
top-notch female fashion photographers into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, the exhibition represents the work of 89 different photographers, uh, 15 of which are women, which in some some ways it seems like a small number, but mm -hmm. the fact that this was so heavily a male-dominated area, mm -hmm. uh, that's quite good mm -hmm. to have 15 women. Mm -hmm. The earliest of those is a woman named Martha Wynne Richards, who uh, was working for Vogue in the early 1920s. And she began signing her name, Matsy Wynne Richards. And then somewhere along the way, she realized that identifying herself as a woman might impede her progress. So she dropped the Matsy oh. and just signed Wynne Richards. I know that... Together, Carmel Snow and Diana Vreeland at Harper's Bazaar really worked to bring more women into the magazine, I think, beginning in the 30s and into the 40s. Yes. And then um, what other um, female photographers do you feature in the exhibition? Um, there's Tony Frisell, Louise Dell Wolf, Lillian Bassman, uh, Genevieve Naylor, Frances McLaughlin Gill, Ellen Von Unworth. Fantastic. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. One of the things that I think impacted um, why women's work in fashion has been overlooked has to do with when uh, they were working, um, where the photographs landed. Um, for instance, if these photographs landed in a library archive, they're much less likely to be shown in an exhibition mm -hmm. uh, that large numbers of people would attend. Um, also, fashion photography wasn't considered valuable before the 1970s when the early photography market started to change things. Mm -hmm. People like Avedon and Penn in the 1970s, because there was a new demand for prints, mm -hmm. they started reprinting from the negatives from the 1940s and 50s um, because they finally had a market outside of the magazine. At auction, right? Is that when is that when uh, the Avedon portrait sold? It was in 2010 that oh. Avedon's Dovima with Elephants sold for over a million dollars at Christie's. Oh, a million dollars. Wow. Yes, yes. That was a watershed. It was yeah. the highest price ever paid for a fashion image. I mean, I can absolutely see why that is one of, one of the most incredible fashion images out there. Yes, it's beautiful. And it's also somewhat surreal mm -hmm. to have the highest paid model of the period, posing in this gritty circus environment and her lithe body, her white skin, creating the perfect foil against which you see these huge elephants with their wrinkly gray skin and they're pulling against the chains that hold them down. And poor Dovima, who was born in Brooklyn and was originally named Dorothy Juba, <laughs> um, was scared half to death of being knocked over or stepped on. I would love to see the negatives before and after all, you know, all of the, uh, the pictures that didn't make it, the final cut. Well, I think it was when one of the elephants stepped on her train and then Avedon said, now I want you to look your most serene. And that's when he got the picture. Wow. So after a brief word from our sponsors, we will turn our gaze to one of my favorite topics, fashion and fantasy. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's 
an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Menopause, perimenopause, These can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. And Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. So. Hands down, one of my favorite fashion images are ones that possess magic and fantasy. The less realistic, the better for me. And where on one hand, you undeniably have these images that are meant to promote a product. My favorite are those in which the clothing is merely one element of a larger overarching story. So the more whimsical, the more serene, the more out there, the better. 
immediately Tim Walker comes to mind as one of my absolute favorite photographers. But Paul, can you speak a little bit to that blurring of fashion and fantasy? When did that start? Because you certainly have the injection of the surrealists in the 1930s. Right. Um, I think we can move it a little further back to the late 1920s when you have Cecil Beaton working. Um, Mm -hmm. Cecil Beaton really admired de Meyer, who had a lot of elaborate backdrops in his pictures and a lot of elaborate lighting. Mm -hmm. But Cecil was also someone who was a student of the theater and he loved theatrical sets. So he basically built a lot of these backdrops for his sitters. Um, The one I'm thinking of is of the three debutantes. Yes. And he has them posed in a riot of uh, cellophane Mm -hmm. and uh, balloons. And it's all backlit so beautifully. And it feels like they're almost floating in a hot tub full of champagne. Yeah. I know one of my favorite images, actually, and we, I'm gonna, I talked about it in the intro, but as the Steichen image with the two models, Marion Morehouse um, and another model wearing the masks. Oh, yes. And it has this very dramatic, otherworldly feel to it that you just did not typically see in fashion photography in that era. Right. And then, you know, we can, if we jump over the 1930s, then in the 1940s, you have Erwin Blumenfeld, who's pretty much the king of fashion experimentation. Mm -hmm. He did all sorts of strange things to his negatives, like scratching them, burning them, putting them in the freezer. Um, He would also shoot through gauze, through bathroom glass, um, whatever he could do to create something um, new and exciting. I know, and it's fascinating to me that he's using fashion photography as a medium to do all that experimentation. I think that's really cool. Exactly. And one of the things that you have to be is very confident in your own self Mm -hmm. and your position in the magazine, because a lot of times the fashion editors didn't appreciate this level of experimentation because it made it difficult for the readers to see the details of the dress. Yes, you are selling a product here. (laughs) Exactly. In one instance, the editor-in-chief of Vogue sent a memo to her staff saying, Um, You know, I'm having women approach me on the street asking me for details about the the clothing. Um, So you need to light the dress so that people can see them. And if you can't do it and make art, then art be damned. (laughs) So I want to conclude with one question, Paul, about street photography. So we're talking about fantasy and surrealism, and now we're going to go to basically on the street realistic street style yes, um, and the influence of that on fashion. Because today, fashion bloggers and Instagram stars are sharing the stage with fashion photographers as the disseminators of the latest styles. They're literally bringing fashion to you by the minute, all day. But the foundations for the influence of street style and street photography, I don't think a lot of people would realize that that actually goes back over 100 years, arguably to the early 1900s. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit more to this history and what arguably laid the foundation for this brand of fashion photography that we are all so familiar with today. Well, in the very beginnings, there was a tradition of photographing women at the races. Mm -hmm. And uh, people like Seaburger Frere, who were a team of 
brothers uh, would go out to the races to make pictures of people wearing the latest fashions. And at first it started out to be society women, but then later on, as the designers caught on, they would hire women who might have been from a wealthy background but were down on their luck and needed some extra money to model their uh, gowns uh, at the races for the photographers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, as I mentioned, in 1933, Munkachi really uh, changed things because he was no longer using a camera on a tripod but a handheld camera that was used to stop motion uh, he did a lot of photography of sporting events. Mm-hmm. Um, so the film was a lot faster. It was smaller. And um, it produced grainy results that didn't have the same kind of detail as uh, someone using a large format view camera with a glass plate negative or uh, a large film negative. Um, so that really shifted how these reproductions looked inside the magazine. And then in the late 50s, you have uh, photographers like William Klein, who's using the 35 millimeter camera uh, to capture uh, activity in urban areas, Rome, New York, Paris. And he's breaking the rules. He's shooting into the sun. He's shaking the camera a bit so that there's a blur in his images. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Horvath was another person who was doing this at that time. And it really took off in the 60s with the Black Trinity, Terrence Donovan and Brian Duffy and David Bailey, mm-hmm. um, who brought this exuberance to their the street photography of the time. In the late 2000s, we have... Um, you know, the influence of these bloggers like the Satorialist who began his blog in 2005. Mm-hmm. By 2011, uh, he was generating over a quarter of a million dollars in ad revenue from his site alone. And I think that surpassed a million dollars now a year. And he had the really great idea of kind of going back to fashion's roots and the Seaburger Brothers, where he's photographing fashionable people going to and from fashion weeks. Yes, real people. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So it's kind of a full circle. Mm -hmm. Well, that is all the time we have today, Paul. But before you go, I had just one last question for you because I am hoping that you can share with our listeners um, what your perhaps all-time or one of your all-time favorite fashion photographer photographs is and why. There are so many, but um, I think... Hero's Black Evening Dress in Flight is one of my favorites. It's very uh, innovative and very elegant. Hero was asked to do a photograph of a shoe, mm-hmm. and he wasn't very excited about that. Uh, so he asked his model to come up the stairwell in the studio building where he was working, and he hauled his large view camera through the trap door at the top of the stairs and shot her from above. So what you get is her striding forward uh, with one foot, uh, one foot out, and you can see her sandal, her gold sandal, and then the wings of this beautiful dress kind of fanning out behind her. And she almost looks like a piece of calligraphy, you know, if you squint your eyes, uh, because she's this black figure in this white and gray ground. It's really beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Paul. It was my pleasure.
April, I wish we had more time to cover the entire history of fashion and photography with Paul, but this was a huge topic. It is. It's a rather massive topic, but you definitely touched on the highlights. Um, but there is a lot more to be said. Um, and if you would like to learn more, you will just have to get yourself out to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles to check out the exhibition before it closes on October 21st, 2018. Yeah. And just like I mentioned earlier, you can also pick up a copy of the gorgeous book that accompanies the exhibition Unfortunately, I don't think I will make it to LA in time, but this book is really the next best thing, and it is chock full of information and, of course, beautiful fashion photographs. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. As always, thank you for listening, and may you consider embracing your inner fashion photographer next time you get dressed. Please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast for images that accompany each episode. This is also our Twitter handle, on Facebook, we are at Dress Podcast without the underscore. And you can write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And also check out any additional readings for each show on our website, www.dressedpodcast.com. Thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.